Invisalign journey. I, I didn't start uh, using Invisalign until three years ago. Uh, practiced in a, in a freestanding building. Uh, built that in, uh, I think, gosh, 1973 and built it so there's no internal supports so we can ch keep changing it around. So as time evolves, uh, when I'm not at the office three days a week, I'm on my ranch and I raise North American bison and horses and that's, that's my absolute first love. Uh, second only to my wife Marty there at the bottom. Marty's one of those fortunate beings that is in her 60s and still looks like a teenager and so I, I'm the one that got blessed with that, okay? Um, that, that little bison she's with right there, she had to bottle feed it and raise it in the basement of the house for the first nine weeks and they're easier to housebreak than a cat. It'd ride the elevator with us, it'd lay down in the kitchen and it, when Marty was cooking and uh, if I went in, got in a shower or something, it'd come in the bathroom and start grunting and going to tell Marty, I guess that there was something wrong in there. But um, we live very, very close to nature out there. We uh, have wildlife that, that's all over. Uh, the little fox in the center, we, we had a whole litter of foxes that we uh, raised in the house. They denned in the, in the, in the fireplace and, and uh, stayed with us for about two years till they get mature and then they'd go and come less and less. Last time one of them came back, she, she had been gone out for about two years, I think. We woke up next morning, there's a half of a field rat laying on the back porch for us. So. Uh, our favorite thing to do for recreation is, uh, I'm an old Oklahoma cowboy, that's why I got one leg hanging here, and I still ride and raise the buffalo, but we load horses up in that big trailer in the center, and it's a four-horse reverse slant with some living quarters up front, and we'll head for the Rockies, and we'll stay back in the back country for six or eight weeks at a time. We're the only, only people that go back here are photographers wanting to get a picture for a postcard. Uh, then you can come out and have a ceramic potty chair and a shower for a few days, and let the horses rest up and go again. <clears throat> uh, used to hunt big time, no longer hunt, so now I just pamper the, the deer out there on the place. We got some enormous bucks because we feed them uh, uh, sea salt minerals so that they get all the nutrition that they need and grow huge racks. And I don't think you can see it on there. Maybe you can see it here on this one, but in that lower right-hand corner, you can see a little black triangle. That's the eve of the, of the log house up on the side of the mountain. These guys are all visiting. If you look hard, there's a, there's a nice six point on the right, a, a somewhat nice eight point on the left, but deep between them, back between those two trees, you'll see the big boy laying down. He's a, he's a 12 pointer with a beautiful, beautiful beam. It's been a 44 year journey for me. I started orthodontics at uh, uh, St. Louis in 1970, and uh, we had to pinch every band, we had to hand make every band, solder it, weld the brackets on. Uh, everything was zero tip torque and angulation, so we had to put everything into the wire. It took us about two days to make the appliance for one patient, okay? So going from there to Invisalign has been quite a journey. I've loved every minute of it. Hadn't been a day gone by that I dreaded, dreaded going to the office because I've continued learning the whole time. If it's been an orthodontic technique, I have tried it. We've tried everything through the years from the very complex to the very simple. And the simpler you get, like Albert Einstein once said, if you can't explain something in simple terms, you don't understand it. My operative professor at Baylor years ago used to tell us you should never be the first to try a technique, but for certain never be the last. I went for about 14 or 15 years refusing to use Invisalign. Three years ago, Gary Strange back here at the back 
called on me and and I sat down and visited with him and, and I said, okay, I'm going to start doing it and I'm going to become one of the best of the best as fast as I can and, and with Gary's help, we've, we've made it through that. Uh, one thing that's been fun through the years, uh, bless their hearts, is there's 19 kids in county who've been patients of mine through the years. Michelle, the mother, has, uh, was a patient of mine when she was in junior high school. And so if there's a technique in orthodontics, I have tried it on this one family, okay? Michelle, we did four bicuspids, full, bond, full banded uh, technique. Now the daughters uh, uh, and the sons, we're, you know, we're now doing Invisalign with. So uh, they have seen it all and, and have uh, put up with me during that time. There are certain people as you go through Invisalign depend on these reps. Deanne White was the first one to, to recognize through Gary Strange and Sean Pemberton the, uh, what we were doing and realized it was a little bit different up until then. I'm just doing things in my office, had been for years, and, and uh, I just assumed everybody was doing the same thing, okay? I wasn't out teaching it or trying to share it. Gary Strange, like I told him earlier, uh, he's the one on the left, okay? Everybody say we, we look identical, and we are brothers, but, uh, uh, and I take that as a sincere compliment. We said, Gary is our Northwest Arkansas rep. Depend on these reps and support them. You cannot support your reps enough because of the fact that they can bring education right to your doorstep. And they, they do everything. One of the best examples for Gary, Gary showed up this morning at breakfast and he handed me this notebook that's a complete guide to this meeting that we've got. It's got every, every event, everything in it, categorized in sheet protectors. I mean, this guy's awesome, okay? He takes good care of you. And so take care of them. And when they set up continuing education, go to it, okay? Sean Pemberton, our regional director, has been just uh, as, as supportive of it and he and he points out that all they can do is show us the path and we're the ones that have to make the journey also select your education carefully the people just by you being in this room and at this meeting you're hearing some of these great speakers they are absolutely awesome some of these speakers and some of these technical support for a line are the ones who have made the huge difference for me but if Invisalign versus braces is like comparing the past to the future I was getting ready to speak at uh, University of Oklahoma uh, uh, last summer to their, to their graduate students. And this case came out in the AJODO as the case of the month for July 2013. They did bicuspid extraction, <clears throat> did a glossotomy to reduce the, the tongue. And uh, it turned out as a well-treated case. And, and believe me, I do not knock someone else's treatment probably would have had to do the same thing on that case. They had some root resorption. But anyway, I looked at the case and I thought, wow, that looks just like an Invisalign case that I'm, that I'm treating, okay? So on the, on the right there is the Invisalign case. You can see that, that orally they look very similar. The, uh, the one I was treating with Invisalign also had a right buckle crossbite and also TMJ problems uh, to boot. So here we are comparing start to, I'm almost finished with the Invisalign case, got a little bit of class three elastic to do on the right. I'm debating, I was debating at that point whether to back it up or to keep the midline on or to, or to try to do some adjustment to accomplish both. <clears throat> we'll do a quick rundown on the case. What we did different, and this will lead us into in a little bit the, uh, how we use some of these similar techniques in, in our treatment of temporal mandibular joint dysfunction. This is our initial clean check on this patient. <clears throat> as 
See, she got the right buckle crossbite, anterior open bite, and in a crossbite like this, especially when they've got a little bit of a high angle, you don't want to extrude those anteriors like we have to do in, in fixed appliances. You're wanting posterior intrusion. So what we do is, you know, your, your, your little bit of force that's exerted by the aligners is not adequate to give you the intrusion that you need. So we begin to place occlusal attachments, and they're still don't, you can't click and, and drop and do these in your, in your ClinCheck Pro, uh, but we're, we're hoping we will be able uh, to do that in the future. But they get, we're enlisting the intrusive force of encroaching on the freeway space. You can also see that because we have a, a uh, cross bike on this right side, the other thing that your occlusal attachments will do is they will disengage the occlusion on that side, making your cross bites much easier. You can see the cutouts on the lower molars. I've got a cutout on the lingual, only on the bicuspid. I'm wanting to, because this is more of a unilateral cross bite, I thought. Um, and so I was wanting to, to anchor with the lower arch and really get that maxilla to come out more than I wanted the mandible to go in. So that's why I'm pitting three teeth against one there, okay? So now we're 16 months into the case. We're 32 aligners out of 42. Bites beginning to, to uh, close down for us. I decided to do a mid-course correction at that point. <clears throat> there is no shame in doing mid-course corrections or refinements. They are part of the tool. When you're doing a fixed uh, traditional uh, appliance, you're making these same nuances and changes. Every time you see that patient, you're basically diagnosing it new. With Invisalign, you've got to plan a lot of it in there. So periodic updates with a mid-course correction or a refinement is a good thing, not a bad thing. I'm gonna back up one, pull this clean check up again. There's one thing that I want to show you on it. <clears throat> You also have to build into your ClinCheck when you're using those occlusal attachments, you still build in the intrusion of those molars. So as you intrude them, and then you'll get a jump at the end when you take them out. Anymore, I will start them usually at about the third aligner because I want my ClinCheck to show me the occlusion on the first three, and then I'll usually remove them uh, at or slightly before we get into the, the overcorrections. Here we are at about uh, 26 months. Uh, um, we had done that, um, and then we did 10 months uh, worth of uh, uh, mid-course correction, and then we went into our refinements and uh, this is what it's all about, okay? Uh, if you look in the first smile, in the first picture, she's not even smiling and showing her teeth. By the time we were at mid-course correction, she's beginning to show her teeth when she smiles. And then when she gets to the end, she was so proud of it that, that she'd break out in a big smile. What we're doing is we're enlisting, you know, our aligners are limited in the amount of force that they can do. But the force of the, of the human bite, on average males around 700 newtons per centimeter squared, Average female, 533. The 
force of the occlusion at maximum intercuspation when they complete the swallow is usually about 40% of their maximum bite force. So it's about 280 on a male, about 213 on a female. That averages out to 355 pounds per square inch that you can engage in the intrusion. Because remember, you're encroaching on freeway space. All of us sitting here right now, unless you're swallowing, your teeth are slightly apart, that's your freeway space. That space is equivalent to the difference between the contracted and the relaxed length of the major muscles of mastication. If you encroach on that, the body's going to reestablish that. If you're in the orthopedic range of forces, using the occlusion to intrude those, you will get maximum intrusion. We're actually engaging the masseteric uh, pterygoid sling which is some of the strongest muscles in the body. Uh, we're causing them to contract by keeping the, the, the force open. They will engage the teeth for about 15 minutes total time in your waking hours. That's all your teeth come together. But if you build up, you'll engage it more. They'll start resting on it and engaging it more. So the occlusal attachments will aid in posterior intrusion by activating the muscles, discluding the posterior teeth. <clears throat> to instruct your, like they can't click and drop now into 3D, so we have to instruct them. I tell them to put three parallel, two millimeter by five millimeter attachments on the occlusal surface of each of the teeth. And then I want them the attachments, the long axis running mesial distal, and want all of them touching on their sides, okay? This case I'm showing as, as an example of how much intrusion you can get this was a male, almost 35 years of age, and I wanted to get some intrusion and get it quickly. And so we actually have added the occlusal attachments both on the upper and on the lower. Now you'll notice that I have to, you have to still build the intrusion into your occlusion. And the beauty of putting them on the first and second molars is you can vary it as much as you want to. To start the tray case, only fill the ones on the second molar. So you're putting the entire occlusal force into an intrusive force on the second molar. As the case begins to progress, go ahead and fill the first molar. As you get further along in treatment, you can then start either filling them or not filling them according to the dictates of that case. You can even do it asymmetrically. You got an extruded molar to, to start with and you're saying, man, I'm gonna, how am I gonna get that thing? Just put a pad on it, okay? If this patient should start getting a little bit symptomatic because you're, you're hitting them, making them hit unilateral, you can, you can buzz that off very quickly, okay? So you don't, you don't have to go with uh, the exact copy of what we're doing, but just understand the theory of it. But you can see in the photograph on the upper right, at this point, at that point, I have intruded my molars to the point that I have great cuspid function coming into play and I'm beginning to get overjet and overbite on what would be an otherwise difficult case. If you try to do the same thing with a, with a fixed appliance, you would extrude the anteriors rather than the posteriors and you're building in relapse on that. Also though, I will support the, um, as I go into treatment, 
with this, I will then a lot of times you'll see the buttons on the lateral incisors. So I will hold them down some, and I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. If you put elastics there, they'll stay occluded on those pads and it will increase how fast you can get the, the intrusion as you go through the case. Don't forget nutrition. This is one of the most overlooked things you can do. This Invisalign case, uh, I was the third opinion for this lady. All orthodontists, the two orthodontists before that, wanted to extract her lower four incisors because as you can see, there's no bone left on them, okay? They wanted to do implants for them. Um, she had splayed them out enough, there was room for an extra incisor on the lower. This is a little over a year later. Look on that lower right radiograph, we're beginning to see interceptal bone that, that would be good in a teenager, okay? And we're doing that by supplementing the nutrition. Most of the patients that come in to see you have poor nutrition. All we had to do on her was add vitamin D3 along with K1, K2, a little bit of magnesium and zinc, and then we put her on lipospheric vitamin C. Do not hesitate to look up lipospheric vitamin C on the internet. Go to LiveOn, L-I-V-O-N, laboratory. Okay, it's a, it's a technology for encapsulating uh, vitamin C or even the B-complex vitamins or, or glutathione within a phosphocytylcholine capsule. Uh, they beat it down to a nanosphere size and it's absorbed through the gut and for every thousand milligrams it, you get about 8,000 to the, to the organelles within the cell. All of us have seen cases like this. They come in, you got the cuspids, they're too far over for us to want to try to bring down. They've already gotten into the roots of the, of the anteriors. Uh, we get them back from the oral surgeons. We've got to try to close an anterior open bite and we're already telling the parents that that we're going to have to probably take out teeth later on or they're going to lose them or at least they'll be uh, you know, somewhat handicapped with them. Same case, during orthodontic treatment, we're not getting root resorption, we're getting root growth and root development. And all we're doing differently is we're supporting with nutrition, okay? Again, the D3, you can go to uh, uh, Biotech Pharmacal on the, on the internet and buy their D3 Plus, and it has everything in it except the C that you need. Uh, how would you like to have this come in as a TMD patient? Tongues ankylosed, um, anytime you see those uh, uh, osteomas on the lower, uh, you know that they're, they're bruxing to the point that the body's trying to shore it up. He was, he's a uh, uh, musician, a horn player. He didn't want to change his front teeth because he's very accomplished playing concerts, but he was having severe TMJ pain. He was having muscle pain in the, particularly the mass that are so severe that he was having to, to uh, not give lessons and, and miss, miss concerts. Came in, I got him on a splint, which we'll show you here in a little bit. Uh, the joint symptoms began to clear for us immediately, but he was still having masseter pain. And the problem was magnesium, okay? Magnesium relaxes muscles. He was deficient in magnesium. We got him on magnesium. He's asymptomatic within a couple of weeks. And then when he came in for an appointment, I said, by the way, have you had a cardiac event recently? He said, yeah, almost a year ago. They put me on all these heavy cardiac medications for atrial fibrillation. I said, well, go back to your cardiologist. Tell him what we just did with the muscles of mastication and get him to start getting you off of him. He's now completely off of him because he was feeling horrible with those. And it was magnesium deficiency that was causing the cardiac event. 
So my journey in Invisalign had to include TMD because I've been doing TMD treatment for 40-some years. I just assumed everybody did it. Uh, so I developed, of course, TMJ for dummies because it's simple if you, if you understand exactly what to do on it. The etiology and progression of TMD, everybody starts with healthy joints. Along your timeline of life, you should maintain that healthy joint. But due to mac micro trauma or macro micro or micro trauma, you all of a sudden have an injured joint. Up until that point, it's preventable, either with good uh, mouth guards, protective equipment in sports, or good dentistry and especially good orthodontics. But once you get the trauma set in and you don't get someone that knows what to do with it, you begin to get oxidative stress, which we will go into in just a moment, a loss of electrons due to the trauma, and then you have a disease joint at that point, and it's downhill from there. Up until that point, it's myofascial pain until you start getting the joint clicking. That means your joint is literally starting to come apart. Up until then, it's been myofascial. Then you begin to have the internal derangement with myofascial pain and dysfunction. You get crepitus. You get the grading. Up until then, it's still treatable with conservative means. Then you'll start getting a bacterial infection, which we will go into in a little bit. And that's something that I think is probably new to most of you. It's still treatable with support, with proper therapy, and sometimes we will even use uh, doxycycline, particular for the chlamydia or the mycoplasma that's, that's the most common in the joint. Because we, and, but we also use nutritional therapy because that person's body's telling you something's not wrong. I'm breaking down. I've got disease. Something's, something's going on. So TMD has been the nemesis of the dental profession for all half of a century. And we as orthodontists have failed miserably in how we address it. And ignoring a problem will not make it go away. And referring a problem sure isn't going to make it go away. And it's going to sure decrease the confidence in you as an orthodontist by your patients. As orthodontists, we're expected to be the best of the best. But only 30% will treat TMD. And less than 10% of the 30% are confident in what they're doing. It scares the hell out of everybody, and it doesn't have to. So why have we as a profession been so, uh, so much of a failure on this? Uh, probably a good example of why we, ha why we have is the Technology Assessment Conference sponsored by the National Institute of Health on TMJ disorders came to the following conclusions, and they had specialists in the full gamut of medical and dental come in they did come up with a pretty good definition. They were all in, in, uh, in agreement on that, but they couldn't agree on the etiology. They came up with a list that's off the end of the scale, and most women in this crowd will, will, will agree with this. Since women are more prone to it for very specific reasons, they think we as men probably cause it, and they may be right, okay? But they, uh, they couldn't even agree on the scientifically-based guidelines for management of patients, TMD, uh, had never been formulated. Uh, they did agree on one thing, and that was that even the name was not universally endorsed. So how are we as a profession supposed to do it? Just in the length of time that I've been in the profession, these are the names that we've gone through. When I started at, at Baylor in 1966, it was called Costin Syndrome, after the ENT physician that originally described it in the, in the early uh, 1900s. So once again, you take a situation that no one can describe, you can't diagnose it, there's no recognized treatment plan, you put that into a litigious society and we're all afraid to touch it. And so we adopt, ignore it, and it might go away. Because we as a dental profession have actually created TMD. 
And the way that we created TMD is when I started Baylor in 1966, Baylor also that year started the first endodontic program at, at Baylor. Prior to that time, if a tooth was abscessed, it was extracted. If it was a bad abscess, the tooth was extracted and the treatment of choice was extract the teeth on the adjacent teeth on either side of it. So once endodontic procedures began to be perfected, and at that point we had to, when we would do it, when we would open a canal up before they would let us seal it up because we were just learning, we had to get it to the point that we could take three cotton points successively on different appointments and could not culture bacteria out of it. So we had to basically sterilize the canal before they'd even let us seal it with a silver point, okay? We got some gray hair in here. You all appreciate that, don't you? Um, I love it when, when a lot of times when I'm presenting, you'll see a high concentration of people with gray hair because we've been there. We've been in the trenches. We know what works and we know what won't work. So as you're evaluating what I'm teaching you here today, remember, I've been doing this 44 years. I actually go out and recruit TMJ patients. So the way I do that is I use it as a practice builder. I go out to the young professionals starting their, their, their practice in Northwest Arkansas, and I would tell them, if you want to learn about TMJ and treat it successfully, you come spend one evening with me. When you, if you've done that, and I give you a certificate for it, then at that point, anytime you start a TMJ treatment to limit your liability and to increase the confidence of the patient, you chart in your chart that you are doing, you are working with that patient's TMJ problems under my consultation and guidance. And then as you're going and you're utilizing the techniques that I've taught you, if you run into a problem and the patient's not responding the way you want to, then you give me a call. You meet me at my office at five o'clock in the afternoon with your patient in tow. We go over it. If it's a minor little correction, I'll correct it after the patient's gone and I'll make you out to be a hero in front of the patient. And then after the patient's gone, I'll tell you what I did. You finish it up beautifully. If it just happens to be something that's over your head a little bit, I'll commend you in front of the patient. Boy, you, he doc got you over here at the right time. I will finish that treatment on that patient free. No charge, okay, on their TMJ. Almost all of them wind up an orthodontic patient on the end after I get their TMJ treatment. So anyway, we created the problem because as we began to do endodontics, we began to save teeth that would have otherwise been lost to periodontal or fractures. We then begin to develop all these phenomenal restorative techniques that, that, that make the average dentist look like a hero. And lo and behold, we were taking teeth that were worn due to normal function and due to abnormal function. We were restoring them to the ideal, and a lot of times they became the problem. Nocturnal bruxism it plays a key role in it. I always put this slide up, and then I realized there's not a lot of people with farm backgrounds like I do, and they don't know what a cud is, but a cud, uh, ruminants will, will eat and then they'll regurgitate uh, part of the vegetation that they've eaten and, and chew it like gum and then they'll swallow it again and bring it back up. And so if this cow doesn't, st doesn't stop uh, chewing her cud in her sleep, she's not going to get over her TMD. A few of the contributing factors, there's a, we could go on and on, we could list another hundred of them, but the four primary TMD factors that experience has taught me is nocturnal bruxism with posterior fulcrums, oxidative stress, bacterial infection, and then sleep, obstructive sleep apnea plays a big role. But nocturnal bruxism does not contribute to TMD without post-canine fulcrums. If a patient hits on a post-canine fulcrum and they cannot 
get to those cuspids, you have set the stage. In a male that has stronger musculature, they will break those teeth, they will wear the teeth off, they will cut the anterior teeth off as they fulcrum into them. On a female, bless their hearts, there's the old double standard. One, their musculature is usually not strong enough to break and grind them off. So they will present for, for symptomatology a whole lot more than, than males. And then lo and behold, if they've damaged those front teeth at all or anything in the posterior, the dentist goes in there and restores it to the ideal and puts it in a material that they can't wear off. So they catch it from both directions. And besides, we men cause their headaches. Now, destructive forces with a post-canine fulcrum, normal physiologic function during bruxism is about 50 PSI. When you hit a posterior fulcrum, you're capable of getting in two to 4,000 PSI, and you're capable of doing that for two to four hours during your rapid eye movement phase of sleep. The bruxism starts as you get into the rapid eye movement phase of sleep. First, it's the movement of the eyes. That's where they get it. The facial nerves activated by the reticular area of the upper brain stem. And there's some things you can do to help them on that. We don't have time to go into it today, but, but, but you, can, you can slow bruxism down. Um, we know that the force range is that high because enamel is the hardest substance in the body, and to get wear facets on teeth requires two to 4,000 pounds. The forces are leveraged above physiologic limits. Remember from science, class one lever system. If I've, if I've, got, a, I've got a big old stone, I've got to move out of the buffalo pasture. I'll get a pry bar, I'll put a fulcrum under it, and I'll put pressure on the end of it, and I can move it, okay? What was it, who said one time, give me a, a fulcrum solid enough and a bar long enough and I can, I can move the earth off its hinges, off its axis, and which, is, which is possible. The jaw should never be a class one lever system. It is not physiologically designed to do so. It is a class three lever system. We got work to do, we got a pry bar, the fulcrum is way down on one end, and we're applying force coming up in the center. The way that relates to the jaw, the jaw joint, the TMJ should always be the fulcrum, the jaw, the pry bar. The work is being done with chewing between the teeth and the muscles are elevating in the center. That's the weakest lever system there is out there. It is not made to withstand the forces of the, uh, not made to withstand the forces of a class one fulcrum system. Here comes your favorite slide. Our tech loves the sound on this one. What we're illustrating there is for two to four hours each night when you have taken the fulcrum and you have moved it to a posterior prematurity, the jaw is still the lever, you're elevating on either end of that, so you've got a seesaw going on that prematurity. The jaw joint that is down is going to come apart. 96% of TMJ patients, the symptomatic side is the side that they put on the pillow. How many, in here, how many in here have a joint that clicks? Anybody willing to? How many of you, is it your sleep posture side? If it is not the sleep posture side, you've had injury at some point usually. If it's bilateral, then you're usually a stomach sleeper. Occlusion is critical, but disclusion is absolutely vital, especially during bruxism. All the body needs in daytime is solid, centric stops right and left. 
That's all it needs. It doesn't need this cleanser today. It does need it at night, okay? Less obvious contributing factors is oxidative stress and resulting tissue degeneration. Just like we saw in that one patient where the bone was being degenerated because of free radical production due to a traumatic occlusion. She didn't have severe periodontal disease. She had a mild case of scurvy, okay? Most heart disease today, when you get right down to it, is a mild case of scurvy. Major scurvy, like the ancient mariners, all the soft tissue starts coming apart and they're bleeding everywhere. In our, our, the human body, our DNA, we have the ability to convert blood glucose directly to ascorbic acid or vitamin C, but it has been, that genome has turned off. That's probably when God said he was going to limit us from 120 years down to 70 to 80 years. That's probably when he did it. We've still got the genome, as do all mammals, except for, for the human, the guinea pig, and a few species of bats. And so we've got to, we've got to be able to uh, quench those free radicals. And to do that, you use antioxidants. And it can, it can result either from excessively produced uh, free radicals due to the microtrauma or macrotrauma, or it can be that a person just has a poor diet and they're not getting enough in, and that's usually what it is. Antioxidants very quickly quench radicals. And also we know that when a free radical has been formed and it is missing an electron in, in the outer orbit, it is going to try to steal another electron. If it can't steal an electron, it's gonna share an electron and when that happens, that's the beginning of adhesions in your temporal mandibular joint on a molecular scale. And then it just crystallizes almost uh, exponentially from there. The malocclusion will produce free radicals in the joint due to the excess stress. Tiny blood vessels are broken. Anytime you have bleeding, micro-bleeding, as the, as, the, as the hemoglobin is, uh, is oxidized and broken down, the iron produces additional ones. Um, you get an inflammatory response, and we're going to sail through this. We're covering a full day's lecture in an hour, folks, and I apologize, but there's information you need to know, and if we need to answer questions later, we'll be glad to, okay? So once oxidative stress is set the stage for opportunistic bacteria, and then after they invade the joint, you can actually culture bacteria from the temporal mandibular joint. 86% of the time, it'll be mycoplasma right on down the list, okay? What's significant uh, about Staph aureus is when you culture Staph aureus from a joint, it cultures out most of the time if there is an anteriorly displaced disc. So by the time the disc is anteriorly displaced, there's a high percentage of time where your oxidative stress is off the end of the scale and you've got a secondary Staph infection in there. The presence <clears throat> A staph will a lot of times be related directly to the symptoms. Um, chlamydia and mycoplasm were found in 73% of the patients in their synovial fluid on patients presenting for temporal mandibular joint uh, surgery at, at Baylor Med School, uh, uh, Baylor Dental in Dallas, uh, Dr. Larry Wolford's study. Now, in, in the area where I practice, Northwest Arkansas, if any of you have ever heard of Tyson Foods, it's a big poultry producer. And so we've got a poultry industry in Northwest Arkansas. So we've got a lot of birds, a lot of byproducts from birds, a lot of dust in the air. Chlamydia 
Satasi is a true zoonotic disease that can be transferred from animal to man. And, when it, and we find that if people have birds as pets in their house, then we can, we can culture out chlamydia satasi in most of their joints. Now, the presence of chlamydia trachomatis and mycoplasma genitalium indicates, and now you did not hear me say this, I'm not, I'm not proposing this, but to some degree, some TMD patients could have a sexually transmitted opportunistic bacteria within the joint. Now, the concepts of adaptive discs, we're going to get into TM joint. Now, we've got to look at a little anatomy of significance. I've gone back and dissected a number of, of cadavers with and when you look at the, at the uh, condyle disc assembly, it's not like we a lot of times picture in our mind this free-floating disc. It is bound down on the head of that condyle like you would not believe. And it is a, it's a chore to cut it loose on there, okay? And so it, when something tears that loose, it has to be a severe macro injury or it has to be a micro injury with oxidative stress with or without bacteria to break down that fibrous tissue that holds that on there and allow it to, to come free in there, okay? I went back uh, years ago and to, to see when I could find the first indications of can a joint heal. There's a 1985 the oral surgery textbook, a uh, particular paragraph that was describing, this is the paragraph describing the uh, uh, cadaver section above it there. <clears throat> and. This is what they were looking at. You can see this is the ear opening. Here's our condyle. That's the inferior border of the zygomatic arch with the articular tubercle over there, ear, articular tubercle, the head of the condyle. This is the disc wadded up and pushed out front. This is the posterior border. This is the central area, bearing area. This is the anterior border of it. But look what's happening we're beginning to see the fibrous tissue not only infiltrate what was the bilaminar tissue, but look where it's even beginning to take on the same shape as the disc that was displaced anteriorly there. And I've been teaching this now going on 32 or 33 years, and fortunately I'm beginning to see now in some of the textbooks, this was out of Okerson's sixth edition, and what what he's showing, he's showing an acute anterior displacement. Here's that bilaminar tissue. It's still innervated. It still has a tremendous blood supply. You can see why they call it the bilaminar, two layers in there. Here's the disc with the posterior band, the anterior band, the central uh, fossa of it here. And this would be acutely painful to this patient. This would be a 28-year-old autopsy uh, specimen. And you can see here it's thickening and you're beginning to get the fibrous tissue coming up. Here's the, here's the posterior band, anterior band, central fossa. This will be fibrose down in here. Again, due to the free radicals sharing electrons and beginning to, to uh, cause the problem. This then would be a histologic slide of a joint with an anterior displacement. Look at the fibrous tissue coming in. Look how the blood vessels are beginning to decrease and you're beginning to get a load bearing tissue as opposed to a highly innervated, uh, highly uh, uh, oxygenated tissue. This is what it would look like further on. Unfortunately, 
I haven't had any mothers that have agreed to me for me to sacrifice their kids, okay, and take these slides. So a lot of this is theory, but it's theory based on clinical practice of what I know that I've been doing for the past 40-some years. And we get the results. This is a fresh specimen. We're getting ready. We've got the calvarium off. Uh, this is the uh, optic nerve. This would be the anterior. The eyes would be out here. Uh, occipital lobe, spinal cord coming up. We're getting ready to cut this section of the petrous portion of the temporal bone out. This is what it looks like. This would be the lateral part of the skull. This is the, the cheekbone or zygomatic arch. Here's the ossicles of the ear down here. Here's our joint. Looking at it from a superior view, this is the uh, preauricular nerve. This is the old disc wadded up out front. There is your posterior limit of it. This new pink tissue is the new disc forming. So we know that it happens. Why doesn't it happen all the time? Uh, why do we have to help it? Probably happens a lot more than what we realize. Those patients just don't present for treatment, okay? But patients that do present for treatment are needing help. The same forces that displace the disc cannot build that new disc until you reduce the forces on them. So some significant physiology, we're going to touch real fast, and we'll hit this again later, but the concept of physiologic rest position. Right now, all of your teeth are apart. You swallow, they go together, they drop back down. Your teeth actually come into occlusion less than 15 total minutes per 24 hours or, or during your waking hours. At night, you'll get them together during, during bruxism. The most therapeutically healing position for a mandible to be in to let the joint heal is physiologic rest position. There's no muscle function against it. There's no pressure on the joint. So we don't want to build any splint or use any splint that infringes on the freeway space during the patient's waking hours, okay? If, if anteriors touch, we get certain muscles that contract. If posteriors touch, and I'll, I'll have patients when I'm getting ready to do it, I'll say, bite your back teeth together. And you all do this with me. Bite your posterior teeth together. And I say, bite them harder and harder and harder. Your brain says that's okay. Now slide forward and put your incisors together edge to edge. Now tell yourself to bite hard on those. And your brain says, uh-uh. Because the six anterior teeth send completely different signals to the brain than the posterior teeth. The posterior teeth said it's okay to bite hard. Anteriors say, hmm, we better not. You put them both together, the posteriors override and allow you to, to, uh, to actually put more pressure against it than what you should. So in your start of, of TMJ treatment, the very best a history for you to get is just our AAO form. Just uh, order this from American Association of Orthodontists. It's self-explanatory, and, and it will help you immensely. You've got a flow sheet in the handout. This is your Bible to treatment of TMJ. Look and read and take your time to go through this because potential sources of headaches. It gives you every one of them. And then you stress test the joint. I'm getting ready to show you how to do it. You're using primary site stimulation, one of the oldest orthopedic uh, principles in the business. You're either going to get pain or not get pain. It tells you what you're, how you're, how you're doing it there. If you, if you don't get pain, they don't have TMD. If they, and, and that's very important because I've had patients in the office with aneurysms or, uh, or a carcinoma of the lateral border of the tongue with referred pain. And if I hadn't done that test and noticed, I would have misdiagnosed the case. If they have pain, this tells you exactly what to do, and we're going to go through that real quick. Primary site stimulation, 
You can use anything between the front teeth. For me, a leaf gauge. You can get them from Great Lakes Orthodontics. Make sure it's thick enough that they can't get a posterior tooth uh, apart because you're tripoding. You've got that between the insiders. When they bite, they're putting pressure between the insiders and they're loading the two joints. They start biting, relaxing five to six second intervals. Sometimes you need to do it for five or 10 minutes. If it hurts, the patient's got TMJ, TMD. If it doesn't hurt, they don't have. If it doesn't hurt, then you need to figure something else out or, or refer them. If it hurts in the muscles, they have myofascial pain without internal derangement. And the way you tell that is when they're biting, after, after they've done this bite and relax for about five minutes or so, if they're biting and they say, oh man, it hurts. That can be either joint or muscles. When they release that pressure, if it's muscle, it go away. If it's still joint, there'll be a lingering pain. They have a, if they have, where it's just myofascial and, and the pain goes away when they quit biting, all you have to do is, is build up their anterior disclusion. We do that with a very simple splint. This, this, the patient will, you know, if you look at a model and you see all these wear facets and angles that are cut into those anterior teeth, that patient spent a lifetime up to then making those. What dummy would go in there and, and just do an acrylic splint and then spend 45 minutes trying to grind it in? You don't have to do it. You do a three millimeter vacuum form down over the anterior teeth, cut it to fit the cuspage. You've duplicated every disclusive angle that that patient has cut in to it. You're, you're, you're getting the exact angle that they need off the articular eminence. You're just adding some extra length to it. If they've really worn the cuspids down, put a little salt and pepper on the cuspid, build them back normal, and then do your three millimeter. So, and, and, and they wear it only at night. And if it's myofascial pain, 24, 48 hours, you've got an asymptomatic patient. So anterior exclusion jig, very simple to make. You only want the lower two cuspids to t contact the plastic. Why? Because 65% of your proprioreception reception comes from the four cuspids. You can, it doesn't matter if you, if you want incisor disclusion too, you can build that in. It's going to take a lot of extra grinding. My staff puts this in there. The ladies in my office can treat TMD better than almost anyone in this room, okay? And they do it. I do not have to do very much of this. They do it and it's like cookbook. They can't understand why people have problems with treating TMD. Then you give them the patient instructions, which are in your, are in your uh, handout there, and don't take shortcuts. Everybody knows what this, the NTI, because I've gotten many patients in where this is the result of the NTI. Because just like we were talking about, it can act to disclude just like the disclusion splint that we're using there, but if they get one posterior together while they're doing it, they're generating two to 4,000 pounds of pressure on the other end of the lever, and they're gonna fracture enamel. So primary, start, uh, primary site stimulation, if it hurts in a muscle, They've got myofascial pain. If it hurts in the joint and it doesn't stop, and sometimes you'll have them biting on that, and boy, they're sitting there in tears, okay? Because all of a sudden, they've come in for help, and you've got them hurting big time. So if they start hurting in the joint, stop the test. I usually will confirm it by just taking half, I take a cotton roll, cut it in half, put it between the second molars on either side, have them retrieve the mandible and bite down. You leverage the pressure off the joint. You also, that proves to you, when they say you can't distract a condyle, that's not accurate. That, the first patient that you get in there where you've got that hot joint hurting and you put cotton rolls between the second molars and have them bite down, they say, oh, first relief I've had in months, you know? You realize what you have done. So we use a bilateral mandibular pivot. We use bilateral 
because the patients get so comfortable so quickly with this that a lot of them want to wear it all the time because they're scared to death they're going to get symptoms again. If we use them bilateral, they can't eat with them and they'll come out, okay? We cover only the second bicuspid, the first and second molar back there. We do that because if you, if you analyze the vectors and forces of all the muscles of mastication, and this is where Okeson and, and Dawson are incorrect when they say that a, that a pivot doesn't work. First of all, they've never used them. Secondly, the data that they're using is accurate if you're doing all the instrumentation through the mouth measuring the pivot effect and the pressure on these appliances. But if you, if you analyze it and you include the orbicularis oris, the orbicularis oris is this far from the, from the pivot point we're using. Remember on the seesaw, it, the heavier person scooted up close to the fulcrum? The lighter person got back, it does not take much force here. Now, if you've got someone with oral myofunctional dysfunction, they've got to learn to seal their lips for it to give maximum efficiency on there. And then when you swallow, you're also engaging the muscles of the tongue to elevate the mandible. Okay. So, integrated scheme of forces passes through the mesial marginal ridge of the lower first molar. If you have a contact point or a pivot point anterior to the mesial marginal ridge of the lower first molar, it will load the joint. If it's posterior to that, it will distract or unload the joint. It alters the pressures of the joint by leveraging it to pivot, and it provides improved joint environment for healing, and it works by distraction and or translocation of the joint. Dr. Mikhail did a great study on this in 1994. Why Dawson and and don't go back and read his work is, is, is beyond me. It's absolutely awesome. These guys, Okerson and Dawson, are absolutely fabulous. In fact, Pete Dawson walks into a restaurant and everybody falls into centric occlusion. I mean, it just is automatic, cause and effect. But the biomechanics of the pivoting appliance, 87.5% uh, of the time, you will unload the joint if you're distal to the, to the mesial marginal ridge. 30% of the time, you get a pure distraction in a vertical movement. 30% of the time, that joint still has not lost the fibrous tissue integrity, so you don't get the distraction, but you'll cause a translocation. But you've got plastic between the teeth, so you can't compress the joint, so you're still gonna get them to a load factor that allows the healing to occur. And then 30% of the time you get a combination between translocation and pure distraction. 35% of the time you get it. So fabrication of the bilateral splints, we just use, um, well snap, in fact, my, my lab tech will cut the model so that he only has half of the first bicuspid back to the second molar. He can take one sheet of three millimeter hard plastic and he can make six or seven or eight of these of these pivots at one time. And so, and so we just fill the occlusal of the second molar with salt and pepper acrylic up to the cusp tips right before you pull it down, put a little bit of your monomer on there so it'll stick, suck it down, flat plane it. You want the lingual cusp of the upper second molar to contact on that skating ring that you created so that when they're bruxing, they can't put pressure laterally on the, on the joints. They just skate around. But then you've got to get them in about every four to six weeks, varying on different patients because they're going to create divots back there where they're fulcruming. Once they get a divot, they can suck that, they can stick that lingual cusp into it and they can put lateral pressure on. 
Okay, so you've got to have it distal to the mesial marginal ridge. Now, if you only have a first molar, put it on the first molar. Make it a little bit thicker because you're not getting distraction, but you're getting translocation. That's why these guys that propose pulling the jaw down and forward and walking it back, they can get results. They don't know what they're doing. And the scary part of it is that in, you have a, a true AV shunt in that, in that posterior to the joint. And if you hold that joint down and forward long enough, you get fibrosis in there. They're never going to be able to get back to sentry. So then you're going to have to change the whole scheme of the occlusion to try to get teeth back together. This technique uses some of the principles of all of these techniques, but it only uses the ones that work. Okay? And you don't have to wade waist deep in, in acrylic. Once, they, once you have the, the, the pivots in place on someone with an with a internal derangement, then on average, 40 years of age seems to be a breaking point. Less than 40, it'll take you three to six months to get an adapted disc the way we were showing in those, those slides. If they're over 40, it'll take you somewhere between six to 12 months. You also factor in there how much nutrition you can get them to improve, whether or not they work out regular, anything that reduces stress load, reduces bruxism, which, which reduces the load on the joint, which reduces free radicals, which reduces disease in the joint, and doesn't make it as easy for bacteria to get started in the joint. When they pass a stress test, after you feel like the symptoms, they've gone three or four months, they're asymptomatic, you put them on a stress test. Put the leaf gauge between, make it thick enough that they can't get a posterior together. They have to be able to bite and relax at five to six second intervals, sitting there in the chair for 10 minutes until they say, Doc, it doesn't hurt anywhere. At that point, you make the anterior disclusion splint so that you can, can disclude them and they don't start to process over, okay? If they go a couple of weeks in the anterior disclusion splint and they say, well, it's kind of tender back here, then you just go back. You say, hey, man, it's like we took your elbow out of a sling too quick, okay? We're just going to put this pivots back in. We're going to go a couple extra months, and then we'll start you. we just save that and we'll use it then. So primary site stimulation. If I've got pain in my arm right here, this is the reason that the leaf gauge works. If I've got pain in the arm, and I push on it and it hurts, that means the source of the pain is right there. If I push on it and it doesn't hurt, or it hurts up here, that's referred pain. And that's why you use primary site stimulation. I think that dates all the way back to Socrates and Hippocrates and all those guys that had, didn't have all the modern conveniences of diagnosis that we have. Pearls for Monday morning at the office so that you can prove to yourself that this works. If you can, and you've got a TMD patient, build pivots in, okay? If you've got a patient in treatment and they did start developing some symptoms, cut the aligner off distal to the lower first molars, take the same composite that you bond your brackets on because you want a soft composite because you want it to wear away. Don't use a hard restorative composite. Fill the occlusion of the lower second molars up to at least cusp height or above. You can't let any tooth anterior to that touch. Adjust it so it's flat plane and that only the lingual cusp of the upper second molars contact it. And then that patient's going to be asymptomatic very quickly for you. You can do the same thing in your traditional fixed appliances. You can fill the occlusion back there. A lot of times, you know how they'll, you get transient TMD symptoms when you go into class two elastic sometimes? And all of us will use the composite on the occlusion to, to free our brackets up so we're not getting 
uh, occlusal contact on them, just do the same thing, except instead of just the lingual cusp or something, do a complete fill. You want the lingual cusp to touch that skating rink and be able to slide two to three millimeters in any direction before it disengages from it. Uh, this is a real quick uh, class two. I've just kind of thrown this in. I love the carry air bars for some of our more difficult class twos. In fact, this is, this is one of the, the uh, uh, adult Duggar children of that 19 kids and counting. Uh, which would you rather treat, the, the case on the top or the case on the bottom? I'd much rather treat the class one case on the bottom. And, and there's about, I think on, on Josh, I think there was probably uh, uh, four months difference on there. And I use, I go ahead and do the Invisalign, the ClinCheck and everything. We make the aligners. I throw the upper ones away and we use the lower ones and we have a cutout on the first motor. So sometimes if it takes six or eight months, whatever you get to to get to your class two, depending on, the, on your class one, uh, a lot of times your lower arch is already, already lined up for you. This is what it does in the anterior. It also opens your bite and a lot of times it'll go ahead and correct the midline for you. So which case would you rather be treating, the top one or the bottom one, okay? So carrier bars are, are one way to help you on your class two. And at this point, it's been a great ride. 42 years practice, two years in residency, 44 years in orthodontics. Like I said, I absolutely love every day I go to the office. It's like playing, you know? I mean, I love it. We are in the very best profession out there. But to remain on that, you gotta learn. You never stop learning. And you always question why. And you try to figure out why. Monday morning when I go back to the office after lecturing this weekend, I will sign the papers for, for selling my practice and my office building. And I'm still going to teach, and I'm still going to stay and see, but it's a very emotional time. Each of you will hit that time, but I have loved orthodontics, and I love what I do. And I'm so thankful to have people that will stay and listen to some old gray-headed, balding guy this late in the day when they can go play in Vegas. Okay, thank you all very much. Thank you.